when you look at the New Testament, it has far more passages about women speaking, um, exercising, as we've said, the gift of prophecy and the gathering of the local congregation, um, women engaging in um, sort of uh, evangelism and sharing the good news of the gospel. The first witnesses to the resurrection, the first evangelists were were women. Um, we see, for example, someone like Priscilla um, with her husband Aquila providing training for Apollos so that he's better equipped for gospel ministry. Now, those are all examples that are there and we can't ignore them and flatten them. They need to be integrated into a fuller understanding of what women can do in the life of the church. So we need to do that work and allow all the passages of scripture to speak equally. Hello and welcome to Independence, the FIC podcast. In this episode, Adrian Reynolds, Head of National Ministries at FIEC, and John Stevens, the National Director of FIEC, discuss the dangers of spiritual abuse within complementarianism in the local church. John, why don't you pray for us as we begin? Heavenly Father, we want to thank you and praise you that you are a God of justice and also a God of grace. Thank you that you um, hate abused and you love um, the vulnerable and the oppressed. We want to ask and pray that you guide us in our conversation by your spirit, that what we say might be helpful um, uh, so that churches can guard themselves against um, uh, sort of abuse taking place and that victims can be cared for in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. John, uh, the FIC is complementarian, and one of the accusations that sometimes made about complementarianism is that it is it, it is itself abusive. Um, just before we get to exploring that, just explain to us a little bit what we mean by complementarianism and especially what FIC means by it. Yeah, we well, are absolutely right that um, people have alleged that complementarianism as a theological position um, is either in itself abusive or, or opens up opportunity for um, uh, abuse. So this is something really important for us to um, think about. Um, I think the challenge here is that um, when people use the language of complementarianism, um, it actually covers a whole spectrum of different particular positions um, uh, and outworkings. So it's important to understand that um, uh, complementarianism is not a monolithic uh, position. And there are some versions of complementarianism that have sometimes led to um, uh, uh, abuse. Um, uh, but I think um, one shouldn't necessarily paint the whole of complementarianism in the same way. If we want to understand what complementarianism is, it's all about trying to understand what the Bible says about the way that men and women um, relate to one another. Um, uh, perhaps the um, opposite of complementarianism is the right place to start, which is egalitarianism. And egalitarians believe that um, God created uh, men and women equally and that men and women are entirely interchangeable in the the roles that they can occupy in society, in the family, and uh, in uh, the church. So th there should be no limitations on what women are able to do, for example, in, in, in church leadership. Um, there's no um, uh, expectation that within a marriage, the husband should in any way be the kind of the head of the wife, um, uh, instead there to be um, an equal partnership. And I think um, egalitarians would argue that although in the Bible you do see situations in which there um, is a difference of role and a, a difference of authority between men and women in these relationships, they would argue that now Christ has come, and as Galatians says, there's no male and female in Christ, that uh, men and women are, are in a new situation of being um, entirely interchangeable. This is why... Um on an egalitarian argument, um, churches are very happy to appoint female pastors, um, uh, female bishops to uh, lead, in, lead in the life of the church. Um, complementarianism um, reads the Bible differently. And, and although complementarians are equally committed to the um, fundamental equality of men and women, so they recognize that the Bible teaches that men and women were equally made in the image of God, that men and women are co-heirs of salvation, that they are equal um, uh, in Christ. Um, complementarians also sort of believe that the New Testament teaches that there are certain 
certain differences in the roles and relationships of, of, of men and women that have been established by God as part of his created order that are not simply cultural. And that if we want to be uh, obedient to the teaching of scripture, we need to reflect those uh, in um, our lives. So um, in particular, um, uh, complementarians would look to what the New Testament teaches on the roles of men and women in marriage. And 1 Corinthians chapter 5, which speaks of how marriage is patterned on the relationship between Christ and the church. And the outworking of that is that the husband is the head of the wife and the wife is to submit to her husband. Um, they'd also look to um, teaching in the New Testament, particularly um, from the Apostle Paul that speaks about the roles of men and women in leadership in local churches. And 1 Timothy chapter 2 speaks of uh, how within the life of the church, um, women are not to teach and exercise authority um, uh, over men. Um, uh, and that therefore that means there's a, a difference in the role that men and women should play in the life of local churches uh, and in the leadership roles that they, they can um, uh, occupy. Now, having said that, although those are the broad parameters of uh, complementarianism, there's a broad spectrum of how those texts are interpreted and applied. So at one end of the spectrum, there are complementarians who are essentially patriarchal in their understanding of the relationships between men and women. They might sort of um, uh, view um, all women as being under the authority of all men. Um, uh, they might take a view that God has created women to be um, submitters rather than leaders and men to be leaders rather than submitters, so that it's intrinsic to the very nature of masculinity masculinity and femininity to be a leader and to be um, a submitter, and that that therefore colours the whole way that men and women should relate to one another in every area uh, of uh, life. Um, that's uh, one extreme um, end of complementarianism, but that's certainly not the position that all complementarians would um, hold. Um, uh, other complementarians would say no. Um, in many areas of uh, life, for example, in jobs and in the secular world, um, uh, uh, men and women um, can perform the, the same roles. There isn't an intrinsic um, sort of masculinity and femininity of leadership and submission, that that is a, a kind of a cultural construct rather than a biblical position. They'd look to the very many examples of women in the Bible who exercise leadership responsibility, sometimes over men, um, even women exercising kind of teaching responsibility, um, uh, sometimes uh, uh, over men. And, and so they would say that that, that is um, an artificial way of understanding what the Bible teaches about the relationship um, between uh, men and women. It's certainly not the case that all women are expected to submit to um, uh, all men. Um, uh, that, that sort of submission that the New Testament speaks of is, is only in the context of certain specific relationships, particularly the relationship of marriage, which is a covenant relationship between a man and a woman, and the relationship of um, uh, sort of men and women in regard to leadership of uh, the local church. So um, again, in the church context, complementarians at the other end of the spectrum would emphasise that it, it's not simply the case that all men and all, all women should submit to all men um, in the life of the local church, that male Christians in the, in the church have an authority over female Christians in the church. Instead, they'd want to highlight that that Bible teaching about leadership and teaching in the church um, uh, sort of simply has the implication that those who are uh, in oversight in the church and exercise the kind of um, doctrinal teaching responsibility in the church ought to be sort of male elders who are overseeing the church. So the position that FIEC takes um, is um, simply to say that as we read the New Testament texts, we think that the Bible says that the office of pastor and elder is um, an office which is 
for uh, sort of men uh, in the life of the church, that they've been given by God that responsibility of overseeing the life of the local church. Um, that doesn't take away from the very many ministry opportunities that women can exercise in the, in the life of the church, including um, teaching responsibilities. And FIEC churches would take a wide variety of views as to the functions that women in the life of the church can um, undertake. And we're committed to wanting to raise up gifted, um, uh, well-qualified, well-trained women to be ministering in our churches um, uh, as fully as the Bible allows. You described there some of the variety of views. Do all those views exist within the FIEC? Um, I, I would say there are very few people who would hold a strongly patriarchal view in the FIEC. Um, I'm not aware of many who would take a very strong line. Um, there would be different views in terms of what women can do within the life of the local church. So if you try to work out this principle of not teaching and exercising authority for some churches, they, they would say that simply means that we need to have male pastors, male elders, but women can do a wide variety of things. They can lead services. Women can teach um, the whole church under the authority of um, the elders. Um, for others, they'd say um, uh, women's teaching responsibility in the life of the church is more confined than that and should only be within um, contexts where they're, they're teaching a, a, an entirely female group rather than a mixed group. Um, I think the majority of um, the churches would be in the sort of the position of uh, sort of um, allowing women to exercise a wide range of ministries um, across the life of the church. So the, the, the claim is often made that complementarianism silences the voices of women. I mean, from what you're describing to me, it sounds like that might well be true. And if, if, if women can't be leaders in the church, can't be an elder, for example, um, their voices are silent to elders meetings, for example, and things like that. How, how do you answer that claim? I think that's a claim that's often made. I mean, even Diane Landberg in her book um, uh, about redeeming power sort of suggests that complementarianism can have the effect of silencing women in the church so that they're, they're not heard. Um, but I think in the reality of many FIEC churches on the ground, that that isn't the case. As I've already said, there are often multiple teaching opportunities that are available to women in um, FIEC churches. There are an increasing number of churches that have appointed women's staff to help serve in the church, um, to be discipling other women, to be helping in the pastoral care of the church. Um, I think it's good practice in many of those churches that those women are able to um, sort of work with the elders, to communicate with the elders. There are opinion is sought um, when decisions are being made, so they're not excluded from the decision-making process. So it, it's, it does, a complementarian position doesn't necessitate the exclusion of women from um, even the kind of highest level of decision-making um, uh, sort of process. Um, I think biblically, um, uh, it, it's clear that um, uh, women are to have a voice in the life of the church. I think if you look at passages like 1 Corinthians 12 to 14 um, and the exercise of gifts in the life of the church, one of the striking things in the New Testament is that spiritual gifts, including spiritual gifts of speaking God's word, are given equally to men and women. So I know there's a lot of debate about the meaning of the kind of term prophecy, um, but in um, uh, sort of, uh, Acts, it says that one of the results of the coming of the Holy Spirit is that everybody will be able to prophesy. Um, 1 Corinthians 12 to 14 is all about ensuring that prophecy in the life of the local church is conducted in a way that's ordered. I take it that that prophecy is simply exhorting and encouraging one another with the word of God. And it seems quite clear that in um, uh, sort of 1 Corinthians, that ministry was exercised not just by men, but also by women in the life of the local church. So there's, there's clearly a, a, an appropriate place for women exhorting and encouraging one another with the word of God, which isn't the same as authoritative doctrinal oversight that you find in, in 1 Timothy chapter 2. And I would hope that that's being exercised in multiple ways in um, churches. 
Also, a very large number of FIEC churches would be congregational to some extent in their church government, which means that um, uh, the key decisions in the life of the church are not made just by a group of male leaders, but actually they're made by the congregational body as a whole. So um, the belief of congregationalism is that every member of the church is being given the Holy Spirit and is therefore able to participate in decision making as we seek to discern the mind of Christ. So in many of our, our churches, the appointment of elders, big decisions in the life of the church, the acquisition of a, a kind of buildings, the appointment of a minister, the exercise of church discipline, um, major financial decisions are made by the congregational body as a whole. And in that congregational body, women who are members of the church have an equal voice and an equal vote with everybody else who is part of the church. So in the most fundamental decision-making um, of the church, uh, women are fully participants uh, in that decision-making uh, uh, process and have a a sort of a, a, an influence um, and a formal uh, power that I think if you're not familiar with a congregational form of church government, you may not fully appreciate. Is it is it fair though to say that in complementarian churches, um, the the male leaders have to work harder at, uh, at not silencing the voice of women? Is 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 there a kind of an inbuilt? bias, if you like, in, in complementarianism? I'm not sure. It's not so that in, an inbuilt bias. I mean, there are some forms of complementarianism which don't believe that women have anything to contribute to those discussions. So when I was talking about the spectrum of complementarianism, and there are those who believe that femininity is associated with submission, masculinity associated with leadership, if there's that kind of understanding of complementarianism, it will inherently silence the voice of women, because those are not seen as being issues on which women are expected to be able to contribute and are not necessarily taken seriously in, in terms of their comp contribution. There might be some uh, sort of uh, sense that women are not competent to engage in those um, uh, sort of discussions. As I said, that wouldn't be uh, what I would regard as being a biblical understanding of complementarianism. But there, there are those who think that. And some of the allegations about how complementarianism is abusive are really speaking about those highly patriarchal cultures. And I would regard that as being not a scriptural position and an illegitimate um, uh, kind of abuse and silencing of women. In um, forms of complementarianism, which wouldn't take that view, um, I think the danger is that men unthinkingly fail to take the time to listen to the voices of, of women. Um, uh, maybe that's because they, they they think they're competent to make the decisions. They don't um, uh, make the time. Often elders are very busy. Um, the demands on them in the midst of busy life is uh, are, are immense. It takes a, a much longer period of time to consult with a wider group of people and to listen. So I think men can um, uh, push ahead with decision making without having taken the time to um, listen. Um, and, and the result of that is often poorer decision making. When um, I was a, an elder in um, uh, my church in Birmingham, and then also an elder church here in uh, Market Harbour, we um, have made sure that our women's workers are able to input into our elders' meetings to help us to make decisions to be able to lead and oversee the church really well. Now, that process takes longer, but it's a really important way of ensuring that um, different voices um, are, are heard. Um, so I, th I think you're right. I think there is a danger of... Um, silencing women's um, uh, voices simply by not taking the time and the effort to um, listen and setting up formal contexts in which um, uh, sort of their contrib contribution can be heard um, uh, uh, and input. And often that's not done deliberately, uh, but it simply becomes a way of working um, that is taken for granted. So I think male leaders need to be especially careful to want to uh, make sure that they hear 
the voices of women in the life of the church, and indeed that male leaders take responsibility for enabling women to fully use the gifts that God has given them um, in a way that God allows. So I think sometimes um, male leaders can be overly cautious. They're more worried about um, people who perhaps think that women are being allowed to do more than they should be allowed to do. They're worried about getting too close to the lines of what scripture uh, might say is permissible. Um, I, I think it's incumbent on, on male leaders to take the lead in making sure that women's gifts and insight are given um, uh, sort of uh, the maximum possible um, uh, place, recognition, value and importance in the life of the local church. I, I take the point, um, although let me just push you back a little bit on that. I mean, we have talked already in, in another of these episodes about the difference between um, abuse that's in, intentional or accident, let's say accidental. If that, I'm not sure if that's the right word, but let, let's use that word for the moment. Um, if, 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 if you're a person in a church whose voice is silenced, in this case, if you're a woman in the church who's, who feels her voice is silenced, the, the motive behind, for example, a, a male eldership effectively silencing you, whether it's intentional or whether it's just because they're, they're as you've described, busy and haven't really given it enough thought. Um, it doesn't matter so much, does it, as the fact that the, the voice is silenced? I mean, certainly in terms of the impact on the person being silenced, it doesn't at that point matter. I think the point at which it will emerge is the point at which those elders and leaders are challenged about what they're doing. So if they are simply unthinking in the way that they failed to listen, um, but actually they recognize the importance of listening, when that is pointed out to them, they will naturally want to change the way that they work to be able to incorporate those voices. So at one level, I think if they're unthinkingly behaving in that way, um, the way that that will be demonstrated is when that's lovingly pointed out to them, they will want to put that right because they'll recognise the importance of taking on board those voices. If their motivation isn't um, simply a, a, a kind of one of um, ignorance or, or, or simply um, thoughtlessness, then when they're confronted and challenged about that, they will resist wanting to listen to um, uh, those uh, voices. So certainly from the perspective of um, the women in the congregation, um, I, I think those that, that do feel silenced ought to feel that they are able to bring that to the um, a kind of attention of, of those that are silencing them. Um, it's absolutely right that they raise and challenge um, that sense of being silenced. How that is then met, the response to that will, I think, actually reveal what the real motivations are. And it, that, that does presuppose as well that they feel able to to raise concerns or that there are channels for them to be able to do so. We're not, we're not going to cover that in this episode, but we will in a later episode talk about church structures. It, it must be important though, just in passing, that it is it's essential for people to be able to raise those concerns, right? Um, absolutely. And the challenge is if you've got really strong leaders who squash anybody raising issues uh, in the life of the church and raising their concerns, then people won't be able to raise their voice about a whole variety of issues uh, in the life of the church. Um, I think um, if you have um, leaders um, who are, are, are accountable to their congregation and you have channels of communication in which issues can be brought to the eldership or raised in the context of a church meeting, then there ought to be ways in which those kinds of issues can be raised because that's exactly what the church meeting and that's exactly what um, uh, the kind of the elders are there, there to be doing. The elders ought to be regularly seeking the opinions of the congregation and, and actively gaining that critical feedback on what they're doing to enable them to lead the church well. If you've got leaders who are refusing to do that, that is a, a massive cultural issue that is often very difficult to change and to challenge. 
Well, we'll come back to that in another episode because it is so important to get those internal structures and processes and, and cultures right. John, can I ask you just um, to step back from from the immediate issue and the, and the present working out of it and just think about this historically? Um, because um, one of the things that Diane Lamberg talks about actually in her book, interestingly, is, is the way that historical um, prejudices and, and abuses carry on throughout generations. Um, this thing really that, that psychologists began to understand after the, the Holocaust and how future generations who have not been directly impacted are still impacted. Is, is there a case to be answered in, in evangelical churches for the silencing of women historically? Um, I, I think that there is, um, but there's also a remarkable history of women being valued and are being included in the life of the church and exercising extraordinary ministries. So um, history is two-sided uh, in this um, regard. Um, so I think if you look back to the very life of the early church, one of the things that was most attractive to the early church was the way that it valued women. Um, and actually, uh, early Christianity was um, hugely influential on women in Greco-Roman society who were regarded as second-class citizens and had very little opportunity to be able to contribute. So, so the church grew precisely because it was able to recognise the equal dignity, the equal value, and the gifts and contribution of um, women. So, the the history is um, of the church, uh, in a sense, challenging the cultural um, uh, outlook and transforming the position um, of uh, women. Um, uh, again, one can look to the tremendous contribution of women to, for example, the missionary movement around um, the world, uh, towards the um, uh, ways that churches have reached out to the community and have cared for. Uh, people. They have been great leaders of um, social initiatives in the life of church that have transformed communities and people's uh, uh, kind of lives. Um, so I think there is there is also a history of um, uh, sort of women exercising very significant um, uh, ministry within churches that we need to recapture. It, it, it's certainly true that some churches have been very conservative in um, uh, their attitude towards women and what women are able to do. And to some extent, that has been driven as a cultural reaction against the rise of feminism within wider society. So I think we need to um, acknowledge and recognize that as particularly in Western society, perhaps from the 1960s onwards, the feminist movement gained um, uh, increasing um, cultural significance. Um, some Christians reacted against that by becoming more reactionary and becoming more conservative and, and felt that there was a need to um, counteract um, what the feminist movement was um, uh, seeking to uh, to bring about. Um, and I think that led many to um, positions that weren't really biblical. Christians ought to have recognised that sort of many aspects of the feminist movement were actually um, in a accord with um, biblical teaching about the roles of uh, men and women. Um, so I think there is a historical legacy to overcome. And that's often the, 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 the reaction of conservative Christians. When the culture recognises an issue of justice and begins to want to address it, conservative Christians can instinctively react against that. And we see the same thing in relation to, for example, the woke movement, the Black Lives Matter movement. There are some elements of the Christian church that when society is putting its finger on injustices, um, the church's reaction is to, to entrench um, uh, 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 and sort of, in a sense, take a more reactionary position. I think that did happen in relation to um, feminism. Um, and I think it's it's taken a period of time for more conservative Christians to keep coming back to the Bible and to keep having their understanding challenged by what scripture says, rather than simply adopting a knee-jerk cultural response. And how do we make sure that our complementarianism is is not abusive by, by being wholly biblical and not overly cultural. I mean, we live in a, a very sort of multicultural world now. Um, 
not only do we have many cultures within the UK, but we have easy access to listening to other cultures and, and different cultures will work this out differently, I guess. So, so how do we make sure that our, um, our complementarianism is, is wholesome, is biblical and not simply cultural? Because presumably once it becomes cultural, that's when the risk of abuse increases, is it not? Um, yeah, I think absolutely. And I, I, that's true of very many kind of um, issues of how we apply the Bible into a particular kind of context. Um, our danger is that we read the Bible through our cultural grids rather than allowing the Bible to change our cultural grids. Um, that means that we need to be um, uh, kind of willing to um, keep coming back to Scripture, trying to read it afresh, um, uh, asking hard questions, uh, and I think particularly listening to the voices of those who are challenging the culture from outside. So um, we need to make sure that we listen to voices uh, that are coming from different cultural contexts. We need to, for example, um, listen to the voices of egalitarians who are sort of uh, sort of uh, presenting alternative interpretations of the text and alternatives outworkings of what this might mean in life, um, because we need to be challenged and see whether or not what we find in scripture really does match up to um, uh, what we believe it to be teaching. So we shouldn't be afraid of asking the questions. We shouldn't be afraid of being interrogated. We shouldn't be afraid of listening to those alternative um, perspectives. We don't have to approach them entirely defensively. We need to, um, in a sense, be open to hear what's being said in order that we can better understand um, what um, the, the scriptures teach. So I, th I think that's a, an ongoing discipline of wanting to be more and more biblical um, that needs to be um, uh, sort of part and parcel of, of, of how we think through the questions. Um, cultures become abusive when they cease, I think, to listen to any external voices that cr could critique their position. I think we need to be particularly attentive to um, areas where we, where, where we find the Bible's teaching um, perhaps challenging and difficult. So I think where we um, find that the Bible teaches something, but it doesn't quite equate with our uh, dis sort of default cultural position, then actually that's an indication to us that we're really onto something important. So where scripture is making us uncomfortable. Um, so I think we need to particularly pay attention to those points at which um, uh, scripture is, is, is uncomfortable. Um, I mean, in terms of uh, how complementarianism can be um, sort of abusive and a cause for abuse, I think um, we've talked a little bit about the silencing of the voices of kind of women in, women in, in the life of church. I think the answer to that is to keep focusing on the Bible Bible teachings about the vital importance of the gifts that God has given to women being used in the church. All the multiple examples of women who are speaking in various ways. And when you look at the New Testament, it has far more passages about women speaking, um, exercising, as we've said, the gift of prophecy and the gathering of the local congregation, um, women engaging in um, sort of uh, evangelism and sharing the good news of the gospel. The first witnesses to the resurrection, the first evangelists were a world women. Um, we see, for example, someone like Priscilla um, with her husband Aquila providing training for Apollos so that he's better equipped for gospel ministry. Now, those are all examples that are there and we can't ignore them and flatten them. They need to be integrated into a fuller understanding of what women can do in the life of the church. So we need to do that work and allow all the passages of scripture to speak equally um, at the same time. Does, does that mean that the, the, the traditional model of, um, you know, the, the minister does it all 
kind of church life is has had its day and is doesn't have a biblical validity about it. I think that's absolutely right, and it was the the biblical model of the one pastor who does everything, and that in some ways had a significant limiting effect on the ability of women to be able to engage in ministry in the life of the congregation. And I think more widely, um, over the last century, the doctrine of the priesthood of all believers, the ability to be able to minister to one another, has been recaptured, uh, and that gives much more opportunity for men and women to be um, exercising their gifts, and, and not just women, but actually men who aren't elders and pastors as well. Because something we need to grasp is that a man who is not an elder or a pastor is in no different position from a woman in the life of a church. I think that's something that many complementarians fail to understand. They think the fundamental division is between men and women. In the life of the church, the fundamental division is between the elders who oversee the church and the members of the church, whether they're male or female. So does that mean that the that, that egalitarianism is in fact not not immune from this risk? Um, yeah, I think egalitarianism cannot be um, uh, sort of immune from this risk. Again, if it has a, a sort of a, a model of ministry in which it's only those up the front who are exercising um, the rights of ministry, people, both men and women, can be um, uh, unduly silenced in the church because of the model of ministry um, that's adopted. Great. Thanks very much, John. Let's um, end it there for the moment. I'm going to pray as we finish this episode together. Father, please forgive us. Um, if we've ever silenced the voices of, of anybody, particularly in this episode, we're thinking about women. If our churches, if the church that we are part of has ever silenced women, please will you forgive us and help us to know how we can remedy that. Thank you for the patterns that you establish in scripture. We recognise the great need for wisdom in applying these in a way which is wise and godly. And Father, we pray therefore for the wisdom that the Holy Spirit gives to be able to put these things into practice in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thanks, John.